Welcome to the teaching ministry of pastors Carl and Cheryl Thomas. Our favorite verse is Habakkuk 2.14, where the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Consumed by that revelation, we are committed to recognizing, resourcing, and releasing high-impact ministries resulting in global glory, transforming lives to impact their world. We have a teaching that will impact you today. Now, let's get right into that word. I do have some additional notes that will be online. How many know that our notes are online before the service even starts? The notes are already there. So you can go online and you can download the notes before I preach. And sometimes that's nice because you can track along and you can say, oh, praise God, he's almost done. Right? At least you know where it's going. And, uh, but the notes are all there, even PowerPoint slides. If you wanted to start your own church and you know, go with PowerPoint slides, they're all there for you too. And you know when we get the most downloads, the most hits on our site? You know when we get that? Saturday night and Sunday morning. We get a hit on our site for our notes and our PowerPoint slides. I don't know why that is. Anyways, how are you? All right, we're going to get into the whole deal with Revelation. You know, it's been a wild ride. It's been a great time, but we've been all through the Bible this year, and uh, it's been something I've always wanted to do as a pastor, so I thank you for indulging me to do that. It was really, really good. I think it was an amazing journey to go through the whole book. Amen? I just love the whole thing. And some people are like, I'm just surprised that you can find the goodness of God on every page. That's because every page screams Jesus. Every page of that word screams Jesus. Jesus said when he taught the word, he showed them himself. And if Jesus, when he taught it, he showed himself, then we should see Jesus everywhere in the book on purpose. On purpose. All right, so in the beginning, look at this. We began this whole sermon series right here, way back here. This was, this was our first sermon way back in the beginning of January. And we began in Genesis where we talked about Adam and Eve being placed in the garden. When they were placed in the garden, they were given, there was a tree of life in Christ. There was the grace of God. There's a tree of the knowledge. What is the knowledge of? The knowledge of evil. No, it's not. It was the knowledge of good. The knowledge of good and evil. I mean, a whole legalistic, moralistic, they were offered life, just drink deeply of the life of God, live out of his fullness, live out of his abundance, live out of relationship with him, or you embrace knowledge, you embrace good and evil, you become a moralistic, legalistic person who begins to determine what's good or what's bad. You make the calls in your world. And that's what they were offered. They were offered total dependence on God, and he's the source of every good thing, or they could go to a place where, you know what, I'm I'm going to decide what's good and bad. I'm going to determine what I think is good or what I think is evil. And God said, don't eat of that tree because if you eat of that tree, you know what that leads to? It leads to death. It leads to death. The temptation of the devil was really simple. He said, don't you want to be more like God? That's what the devil said right at the start. Don't you want to be more like God? That doesn't sound like a bad thing, does it? I mean, turn to your neighbor. Don't you want to be like God? Most people say, yes, of course. But it's really stupid if you're asking somebody a question and saying, don't you want to be who you already are? Because they were already created in the image of God, fully endowed with the ability to have a, a, a relationship with God. They were already endowed with the ability to reproduce, represent, manifest, to operate out of the goodness and authority of God. And here's the devil saying, don't you want to be more like God? So then he introduced doubt. He introduced some questioning. He introduced something that maybe God's not that close. Maybe God's not that good. Maybe there's something more to the God thing and he's holding out on me. Maybe through my effort, maybe through my independent 
you know, trying and effort and maybe through something I do, I could be more like God. And sadly, so much of the, even the charismatic church today has got people on a performance treadmill trying to be more like God. If you could have been more like God on your own, you didn't need Jesus to come. And that is the lie of religion that gets you into performance and gets you constantly evaluating yourself. And then the devil, you know, he'll say, don't you want to be more like God? And then he accuses you all the time. Well, that wasn't very good. Well, that was pretty miserable. Well, look at you now. I mean, I can't believe you did that. That's the devil. Who accuses you? God, does he accuse you? Jesus who redeemed you? No. But the devil, he's the accuser. In Revelation, we're going to read the accuser got cast down. And how do we overcome? By the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Not by your striving, your ability, but by a simple confession. His blood did it all, and I absolutely agree to that. That's it. That's the life of an overcomer. Jesus did it all, and I agree with it, and I'm staying fixed right here in the finished work of Christ. Any other way is what they did. They were tempted to live independently of God, and that's what happened right at the beginning. But right at the beginning, God said, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to restore you back to myself, and I'm going to do it on my terms. I'm going to cut a covenant with myself so that nothing can ever rob you from me ever again. And I will have the absolute right to embrace you even when you're wicked, even when you're sinning. I will pull you even closer, and I will squeeze you right there in my arms. And even when you're a massive failure and you've fallen on your head, I'll squeeze you tighter to let you know that I will never, ever leave you or forsake you. And I'll be able to do it because I cut a covenant that allows me to do it and I cut it with myself I cut it in my own son I shed my own blood to declare that you are not only imputed righteous but you've been imparted righteousness and you're mine forever and that's what God did that's what God did God said well I got a plan because Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world to get you because you see at this place you could sin See, at this point, you could sin. At this point, you could, you could do something ungodly. But you see, when you come into Christ, you come into a new realm. It's where it says in 1 John, I'm a child of God, and I cannot sin. I know that blows people's minds. But you see, that was the whole idea of this whole new covenant. And it doesn't mean you can't fail and you can't do something stupid. But you'll never have a relationship with God based on good or evil or based on your behavior, your performance. You'll have a relationship with God based on what he has done once and for all. And that will flow in and through you. And that will eradicate every bit of failure in your life. And it'll cause what he imparted to you to come into manifestation in your life. That's the story. That's the whole thing. And we went through the book and pulled it out from every page we possibly could to show you that this is the will of God for you. And this is his heart of passion for you. All right. Let's go, Pastor. Original sin was eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the sin of pursuing life, our identity, our worth, our significance, and our security for ourselves, an attempt to know what only God can rightly know. Satan's challenge to Adam and Eve was, don't you want to be godly? Don't you want to know right and wrong? And that is, in itself, the whole independence thing. We have the ability to now determine what is right and wrong. We'll self-govern, and that's the whole aspect of moralism. Moralism. What's moralism, Pastor? It's the belief that the gospel can be reduced to improvements of my behavior. That's moralism. Galatians 2.21, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. If righteousness comes through behavior, then Christ died in vain. If righteousness comes by, by, by me behaving a set of rules and, and by doing and being good according to a list of rules, then, then I've not embraced God's grace and I am declaring, you died in vain, I can do it on my own. 
That's moralism. And that was a whole lie right from the pit of hell. Morgan Guyton, he said, so you should not be pursuing the knowledge of good and evil when you read the Bible. That's eating the same fruit as Adam and Eve ate. Instead, we should be reading the Bible to discover the love of God that makes us more loving. Sadly, too many Christians want knowledge rather than love because knowledge gives them a feeling of power. It makes us think we can be like God, exactly what the serpent tricked Eve into in the beginning. But knowledge itself even perfect knowledge of good and evil has no power to make us like God at all. It's love that makes us like God. And only God can be the origin of love, and we can only be recipients and conduits. Say amen. amen. Those notes are all on the line for you to check out and take a look at. All right. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. You ready? This is the revelation, not revelations. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. Say soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God, and this is the testimony of Jesus Christ. Say soon take place. Soon take place. This is stuff that was going to happen really, really soon. Sadly, somehow, some people decided to project it way off into the future, and there's a lot of weird teaching on Revelation today because people couldn't read the first couple of verses properly. I got some other stuff. I got, are we living in the end times? I got another little sheet that I'm not going to preach on today, but it's at the back. And if you want to grab one when you're going out, it's like, what does eschatology mean? What are the seals, trumpets, and bowls? What is the great tribulation? What is the rapture? What is the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Bunch of other stuff that you might have questions about. And that might cause you to have more questions. Because they're going to give you four orthodox, say orthodox, there's four views to be considered orthodox. There are people who have an eschatological framework, study of the end times. There are people that, that have a framework that is different from other people. I went to a, a, a Bible school where we didn't have a, this is our version of the end times. We had all the profs had different versions, and they all loved each other, and they all enjoyed each other, but they all, when they read the word, they, they, they saw it different. But, you know, it was okay. They all, you know, same, we believed Jesus, we believed God, we believed Holy Spirit, we believed all the doctrine that you should clearly understand, we were all in agreement on, except they all had different views on the millennium. Was it pre-millennial? Was it post-millennial? Was it, or was it all millennial? Was, was there a rapture? Was there no rapture? I mean, they have all these different views, and and all of these things, if you have a friend who has a different view, he's still a believer. You don't have to have the same eschatology to be in the kingdom with each other. Most people don't have any eschatology. They just think they do. First, I have to explain them what there's in and then tell them why it's wrong. Because they don't. Some people think, I got a strong, strong eschatology. I know what I believe about the end times. Then you ask them and they really don't. And that's okay. Because you don't have to have a strong eschatology to get to heaven. You just got to believe in Jesus. But let me tell you this, all right? Let me tell you this right now. Give me that. Give me another slide. You ready? Revelation of Jesus Christ was written to common people. It wasn't written to theologians and deep people who understood deep mystical truths and go into trances. You don't have to be Mr. Smarty Pants to understand Revelation. And you should read it because it says, blessed are those who study this word. You'll be blessed. If you don't. How many kind of avoid Revelation because you just don't get it? Don't do that. Get into it. 
Read it, devour it. Read it, read it every month this coming year. Read it, because there's a blessing on reading that book. The release. But listen, it's not too complicated for you. It's not above your head, because he wrote it to common people. And you know, in their day, a lot of people were illiterate, and, and a lot of these letters were circular letters sent to the churches so they could be read to people. So this was written in a way that common people would understand it, and they understood it in their day. Say their day. It's a book that was written in a day at a specific time with people who were dealing with real problems in their day. And they knew what he meant when he said certain things because those were the way they talked and they used certain images and things to address certain things because in their day it had incredible meaning in their day. But if you interpret it outside of their day with your own interpretation of it, you can take it totally out of context, develop a pretext, and then you can get a TV show and sell books. You know, the Bible says nobody should be making money on end times teaching. It says, in fact, nobody even knows. But it's funny that some people say, I know, buy my book, I'll tell you. And they can interpret the signs of the times in the newspapers and everything else. Anyways, but people love to get caught up in that stuff. How are you doing? All right, I hope you're doing good, good, good. All right, so listen, go back to that one just for a minute. Uh, this is not Jesus in the manner of the Gospels. It is a bit different. Because suddenly, here's John, he knows Jesus, right? We hung out together. I mean, literally, we'd have dinner, and I'd kind of lay on his breast, and we, we'd kind of talk, and I mean, they were pretty, pretty close people. And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up this time, and it's eyes of fire, you know, the voice of thunder. And John's like, Jesus, dude, chill out, like it's me. <laughs> but he comes with incredible authority. Suddenly, you know, Jesus, sometimes people won't recognize Jesus because they think, this is the way Jesus always comes to me. Jesus can come a lot of ways. And when Jesus came on the road to Emmaus, initially they, they'd been hanging out with him. They were one of his disciples. They didn't even recognize him because he came in a different form. And then he revealed himself to them. Now here's Jesus suddenly showing up as, all right, I'm now the risen Lord in Christ, seated on high and throned above everything. I got some instructions for you guys. Pay attention. And I'm serious about this. Get it done. So it's a little bit authoritative, a little bit wow, a little bit hey. So kind of a different tone. Yet it is Jesus. Yet Jesus, the risen Christ, came and manifest himself powerfully. Really short outline. You ready? Just for you. Really quick outline. Revelation, right? One to three, introduction, letters to the churches, four to five, God's throne room, six to eight, seals to reveal, nine to 11, trumpets to warn, 12 to 14 and five, spiritual battle is one, 14, 16 to eight, spiritual battle is one, that's good, I'm not going to preach on it, but it's one, the accuser's been cast down, he's done, that battle is done, that's not futuristic, we know it's done now, the one who accused the brethren day and night, he is cast down, what do we do now? We, by the word of our mouth and the testimony about the blood of Jesus, we are constantly victorious, so that is stuck in there to tell us the spiritual battle is one. Verse 14, bowls of wrath. Now, the world was judged in Christ Jesus, the whole world. I, I'm cautious to use the word judgment because it says the whole world was judged in Christ. Jesus said, now is this world judged. Now the world's condemned, and now the evil one, he is judged. And he said that then, and he said now. So there aren't judgments of God. There are, there are consequences of sin. There are consequences and results because of fallen and broken behavior. But God doesn't send earthquakes and things like that because he's ticked off with people. And if you have a different theology, that's okay. We can still be friends, I hope. But some people get really weird about that stuff. So, but I did put bowls of wrath. Bowls of wrath. Jesus, victory and reign. Hallelujah. Jesus, victory and reign. And then a new heaven and a new earth. And I'm not going to teach on heaven today. But if you want to know what heaven's like, open the door and look out the window. 
Right now, there are people in heaven, they're in a place called heaven, and it's very much like here as well. People know each other, they see each other, but they're in spirit, but there's going to be a resurrection of body, and we're going to come back, and there's going to be a bodily resurrection. And we're going to have super amazing resurrected bodies, just like the one Jesus had when he walked through the doors and walked through walls. But that same body also cooked breakfast. He's going to have that amazing body, that body that rose up and went up into the heavens. Like, where'd he go? That same body. We're going to have resurrected bodies. But guess what? We're going to reign and rule with him in heaven. What's heaven look like? On earth, there's going to come a new Jerusalem. There's going to be a new earth, a new heaven, new everything, and a new Jerusalem will come out of heaven, and it'll come to earth, and look what it says. It says, and we will forever and ever reign with him on earth. So if you want to have a harp and float around on a cloud somewhere, and that's your faith, that's okay. I'm not going to mess with you, because if that works for you, that's wonderful. It's not biblical, but God bless you. You won't be kept out of heaven because you go, where's my cloud, my harp? Oh, you poor thing. Okay. And here's another one for you. Just to mess you up, you're probably going to have a job. Okay. <laughs> I got an amen from the canine section. Now listen, these are seven real churches. They're seven. I have no clock, so I have no idea what time it is because time flew a couple weeks ago and we haven't got it back yet. But I'll try to, I'll try to be quick. All right. Seven, these are seven real churches. These aren't mystical churches or, or these are really seven churches. See, what's happening either just did happen or is about to happen was that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed, totally destroyed. And it was going to be annihilated and everybody was being persecuted. They all left. Everybody left Jerusalem. They left Judea. And now the church is kind of like, what's going on? And so Jesus, because he loves his church and he's building his church, he communicates with his church, seven real churches, very real churches in very real places, very real identities, and with stars or with angels, with, with leadership, stars, things like this, if you study, God is consistent everywhere in Revelation. If you use the stars at the beginning to mean something, stars means that everywhere through. It's the, it's the first principle and first usage uh, hermeneutic that you have to use to interpret scripture. So when he says that, he's not talking about some global thing, he's talking about leaders, he's talking about people, he's talking about the angel over that church, somebody that he's really sending it to. All right, and he's talking to real churches. Now, I'm not going to talk about all seven of the churches because they don't have time. But two of the most popular teachings that come out of the seven churches in Ephesus, where in Ephesus it says, it says he says, look, a hard, look from where you have fallen. It says, turn back to me and do the works of first. It says, you've fallen. So we talk to people, you've fallen from God. You've fallen. Look how far you've fallen. You better turn back to me or I'll take away your lampstand. And they say that God's going to take his presence from you if you don't get back into a relationship with him. It's not what it means. It means that you have fallen, but you've fallen from your first love. You have fallen into a place of works. You've fallen into a place where you guys, I'm, I'm watching you guys, and you're really good at it. I mean, you test false apostles, and you're good at it. And I look at your works, the deeds of Nicolaitans, you've dealt with that. I mean, I look at all the things you're doing. You're doing all that stuff right. But he says, I come, and you guys are so busy doing good stuff, you don't even celebrate me anymore. I mean, I'm coming, and I'm kind of like, you guys are awesome. i got to check all the boxes and say, well done. But the sad thing is, is that the most important thing was just hanging out with me and just being lost and embracing and drinking deeply the tree of life and your first love. I mean, that's really what's important. I want you to get back to that. I want you to get back to being in love with me. That's what's going to sustain you through these difficult times. That's what... His message was to the church in Ephesus. Let me give you one more. It's one of the favorites as well. It's in Laodicea. Say Laodicea. 
This was a city, a real city, that was very, very prosperous. In fact, there was some nasty disasters that took place that rocked a bunch of the cities. And Laodicea, the Romans, were wanted to give them money to rebuild. And they said, we don't need your money. We are prosperous. We can do this ourselves. And they never, and they, they prided themselves in the fact that we as a very rich city never, ever needed anybody's help. And that was Laodicea. That was their attitude. You see, in Laodicea, it says, but since you are lukewarm, like lukewarm, warm water. You are like lukewarm water, neither hot or cold. What does that mean? How do you, has anybody ever used a tap with hot and cold? Does anybody know how you get warm? Both at the same time. It's mixture. There's mixture. And you see, wherever there's mixture, he says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Amen. Be afraid right now. Because if you're involved in mixture, so a lot of people teach, you're a little bit in the world and you're a little bit hot for Jesus. If you don't get really, really hot for Jesus, God would rather you be a devil. He really wouldn't. You see, what he's talking about, he's talking about the law. He's talking about you people think you're good at everything. He says, you know, you don't, you say I'm rich, I have no need. You say you're not poor. You say you're wonderful. You say you have wealth. That's what they were saying. And they were basically saying, I have no need of you. I got this covered all by myself. I can cover it all. Thanks for your assistance, but go help somebody else. There's a lot of people out there that are saying, if I'm going to go to heaven, I'll go on my own terms. I think I can stand before God and say, I think I did pretty good. And what he's saying to a Laodicean church that wants to get stuck in rule keeping, wants to get stuck in their own self-righteousness, wants to get stuck in their own ability to, to do life and do good. See, they're unwilling to say, I need God. I am hopeless. I am helpless. I am worthless. But he says, you don't even know that you're worthless. You don't even know that you're poor. You don't even know that you're wretched. And that's what he's saying to this church. And he's saying, because you're dependent on your own self-righteousness to try to have a relationship with me. It's not, you better, come on, folks. Let's get hotter for Jesus. How hot do I have to get? Can you stick a meter in me and let me know when I'm done? When is, when is hot enough for God? Do I have to shout like Pastor Carl? Do I have to pray like he does? Do I have to sing like George? I mean, what is enough? What is enough to appease that angry God up there is keeping score? He's not keeping score. He already kept score. Jesus. And he says, Jesus did it all. Therefore, you always get 10 out of 10. I didn't worship him much today. You know, a lot of times we don't give everything because we're stuck in that performance thing. And we get so exhausted going, you know what? He's never satisfied. It's never enough. And then he'll go to another religious charismatic experience and they'll say don't you want to go deeper what you need to say is i rebuke you devil you're the same father of lies right at the start who messed with eve okay that just took out 90 percent of the charismatic teachings on the internet (laughs) thank you ben Okay, let's go, Pastor. You're supposed to get in here, all right? So Laodicea, all right? People who don't see their hopelessness without Christ. I mean, so let me just say this. You ready to give me another verse? Boom. Let's just grab another verse from John. All that my Father gives me will come to me, and all who come to me I will most certainly not cast out. I will never, never, never reject anyone who follows me. Say vomit. If you're lukewarm, he will vomit you out of his mouth. So right now, come on up here. Where's the Kleenex? You all need to come up here and cry and repent and flow with snot for half an hour because you're not hot enough for God. He's going to... 
Oh, look, Carl, Carl tastes terrible today. <laughs> I will never, 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 never cast you out. Because the way you come to me isn't through your performance, it's through his performance. I, the gate, the door, the way, the truth, the life, Jesus. And you know what that does to you? It actually creates a holiness in you that can only be produced by the Spirit of God. I can't even get hotter than I am today. Because I'm hot to trot for the big fella. <laughs> Was that wrong? <laughs> I'm sorry, honey, I repent. <laughs> all right, anyway, I go through all... I got, actually, you know, I got... Uh, I got three books. These are all in the bookstore, all right, because I can't teach all three of these today. Victorious Eschatology, fabulous book. Read that one. It'll help you a lot. AD 70, The End of the World. It'll tell you all about Matthew 24 and how to properly interpret it, what happened at AD 70. And then I got uh, Paul Ellis and his books, Jesus Letters to the Churches. I got those. They're all in the bookstore. And, all, and if you want to go deeper than I can go in 35 minutes or 40 on a Sunday morning, then you can get those things, read stuff, get stuff. And you know what? If you disagree, because I don't agree with all of that stuff. I, there's some stuff I got my own opinion on. And that's okay. We're still friends, right? Amen. Amen. Okay. Two witnesses. Here's a big deal, too. Two witnesses. I'm just going to dabble with a little bit of stuff in Revelation, all right? The two witnesses. Amen? Two witnesses are going to show up in the tribulation. See, the tribulation, for me, the tribulation started with the ministry of Christ, three and a half years, because you follow the 70 weeks of Daniel, three and a half years, he was crucified, three and a half years, they finished the seven years, three and a half years later, Stephen was, was stoned to death. Boom. Tribulation over. So for me, you don't take a break in the 70 years and push it 2,000 years away. I don't know, it doesn't say anywhere in the word where you get to do that, but a lot of end time teachers, for some reason, to fit their interpretation of Revelation, they put a massive gap between the 69th week and the 70th week, put 2,000 years in there, and put all kinds of other funny doctrines in there, when just leave it where it is, and it finishes with the stoning of Stephen, and boom, tribulation's over. That messed up some people right there. Two witnesses in, in Revelation talks about the two witnesses. Well, it's two real physical people that are going to show up in the tribulation because we got to deal with that tribulation time, right? So 70 AD, Jerusalem was brutally and thoroughly destroyed. That's historical. Everybody knows it. That's extra biblical. There's historians who've written about it all over the place. You can read about it. It was a three and a half year battle, 1260 days, the three and a half years, all that stuff. Some people take the tribulation, they put it in this period with, with uh, AD 70, and they put it in the time here. So it could only, you could only experience this type of destruction, the only way a whole group of the Jewish nation could be destroyed is if you were only destroyed if you had the testimony of two witnesses. And if you read it right, you'll understand that the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. Whenever the scripture talks about Moses and Elijah, what are they talking about? They're talking about the law and the prophets. So what was the witnesses that stood and testified against the Jewish people that allowed 70 AD to take place? Because it had to, the God is, a, is completely, he, he doesn't like legalism, but he is a legalist. Every jot, every single thing has to be covered and done right. See, you could not have a destruction of a people without witnesses. You could not, capital punishment in the, in the word, in Deuteronomy, capital punishment, a person could not be put to death for killing somebody unless there was two eyewitnesses. So what he's saying here is he's saying there has to be two witnesses for the destruction of Jerusalem. Who are the two witnesses? It says the law and the prophets testify against you. And 
Jesus said that to the people that he was preaching to. He said, what testifies against you? The law and the prophets. So those are the two witnesses. It's not two guys that are going to show up someday. Wow, did you feel the brakes going right there? Hey, some people really... And that's okay, we're still friends. If you want to keep two physical witnesses, I'm okay with that, honest to goodness. I really am. Okay, good. Let's go to another slide just because we got to move on. So Jesus warned of the destruction in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24. Church history tells us, listen now, this is, this is such an amazing fact about church history. Church history tells us that it's many, many witnesses, not just one or two people, but many, many witnesses in that time. And many of them weren't believers. Many of them were, were Jewish historians or Roman historians. They, church history tells us that, that there are people that not one Christian was in Jerusalem at the time of his destruction. Not one Christian, not one believer was still in Jerusalem when it was destroyed. Why is that important? Because that was the warning of Jesus in Matthew 24. He said, don't go back into town. When you see these signs, don't go back in. Don't go because it's the end. The end will come. And people have taken that and projected it in the future. And they've turned it into, you know, don't, don't, you know, be careful where you are. Don't go back in your house. One will be with and the other gone. And they, they got all these things. They, they take all that and they interpret all kinds of stuff by it. When it's straight up simply, Jesus was telling them in Matthew 24, and he wept when he was on his way on the journey. And when he, when he was there coming in, in the Passion Week, and he's coming to Jerusalem, he wept because he foresaw the destruction of Jerusalem. And in 70 AD, it was totally fulfilled and totally done. The whole place was ruined. Eusebius said the royal city of the Jews, the whole land of Judea, there were entirely no, <laughs> the entirety of holy men, there were none there. I think I may have written that down wrong, I don't know. But what he was saying was there's not a single believer, not a single holy person, all Christians. That is an amazing, amazing fact that I think never gets, you know, echoed enough because it's amazing that every single Christian got out of there because they heeded the warning of Jesus. Amen. All right, give me another slide just because we're warming up. Antichrist, amen. All the Antichrist lovers here. How many times is Antichrist in the Bible? It's on the screen. Four times. How many times is it in the book of Revelation? Zero. Okay. But it's a big deal, right? So it appears four times in John's epistles, and there they are, all four of them, all references to deceiving spirits, a deceiving spirit or spirits, because it in place it says antichrist. doesn't say one. It's not singular. It says those who do not recognize Jesus as the Christ and is coming in the flesh. That's antichrist. That's what the Bible teaches. But some people are like, there's antichrist. Then they go in the, what about the sign of the beast, pastor, 666? If you look at the number 666, that numerical thing, there's many believers who believe that they're writing to people in the day, incredible persecution, and who's he writing about? He's showing them that what I'm talking about is Nero. Nero was somebody who persecuted the churches like no other person. He used to take Christians and cover them with tar, and then he would light them on fire just to light up his garden parties. He would burn people alive. He's the one who threw them to lions and did all that stuff. 666, the beast, the manifestation. And in this whole thing on the judgment of Rome in the book of Revelation, it talks about who that beast is. Who is he? 666, that number, numerically, it means Nero. Series are Nero. That's what it means. And they all understood that. They knew that because in the context, they knew if we're going to read this thing publicly, let's read it this way because we're already in a lot of trouble with the Romans. So let's, let's add some symbolism to this. And that's what they did. And the symbolism was relevant to their day because all this stuff is soon going to come to pass. Not somewhere in the sweet by and by. Anyway, all references to that. All right. So we covered a lot of stuff already. Isn't that amazing? 
And hopefully we still like each other. Amen. That's good. All right. So, so good stuff. All right. So uh, fear-based, here's Paul Ellis out of 87. He said, fear-based eschatology is dangerous. Fear-based eschatology is dangerous. It binds the free and makes the church look foolish. Worse, it destroys the gospel and portrays God as something other than our Heavenly Father who lovers us. <laughs> Sorry, that was a misquote by me. Who loves us? He loves us. I think he does love us too, but anyways, he loves us. All right? So a lot of people have a fear-based eschatology that it's going to get bad, it's going to get ugly, the markets are going to crash, it's going to get nasty, oh, it's going to get horrible, oh, I'm telling you, if it wasn't for Jesus, oh boy, let's all stand at the bus stop and practice our rapture jump. Get me out of here, get me out of here. All right, let's move on to the next one. All right. This we are convinced of. I'm going to go through this pretty fast, all right? This is what I'm absolutely convinced of. The other stuff, if we want to interpret that another way, I'm totally cool with that, honestly. But this I'm really convinced of. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Revelation 22, 7, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of this prophecy and of this book. So let's put our running shoes on, and we're going to do this pretty fast, all right? So I'm convinced of it. So prophecies of the second coming outnumber the incarnation eight to one. Prophecies of Jesus' birth and prophecies of the second coming, there's more prophecy about the second coming than there is about his first birth. They outnumber it eight to one. There's 1,845 prophecies about the second coming of Christ. 260 chapters in the New Testament have, have references to the second coming. 318 times, one in 30 verses in the New Testament, there's reference to the second coming of Christ. So you know what, if it's that much in there, I think we should know something about it. Amen? How many know he's coming again? All right, well, let's, let's learn a little bit about it real fast. You ready? Okay, and all these notes, they're online. You can check them out, or you can take them, put them on a dartboard, and throw stuff at them. All right, so this is what we believe. We know he's coming again. So before the king of glory comes, please hear me, before the king of glory comes, there's got to be a manifestation of his glory in the earth. What kind of a manifestation? A full manifestation. So it's not going to be ugly and messy before he comes. There's going to be a group of people that shine so brightly of the goodness of God, who demonstrate so powerfully the glory of God, that nobody will mistake that we are who we say we are. It's not going to be a piddly group of people that meet every once in a while in a building without any results. It's going to be a glorious church, powerful church, without spot or wrinkle, demonstrating his goodness and his grace. How do I know that? Because it says that for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea. How do the waters cover the sea? Fully, totally, heavily, massive impact. Isaiah 40, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed in all flesh. Pinch yourself, pinch your neighbor, pinch somebody. All flesh are going to see it together. It'll be revealed. All flesh will see it. And what am I going to put behind that? What am I going to emphasize that with? For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. I just said it, and I'm dead serious about it. The whole earth and every single person in it is going to see a massive impact of my glory before I return. So before God could put himself in you, he had to put his environment in you. Before he could put his spirit in you, he had to create a new spirit in you. Before God returns to the earth, he's got to flood the earth with his glory. There's got to be the environment of his holiness that's going to come in a big, big way. And we've got a big job to do because glory is gushing out of our bellies and it's filling every crevice of the earth. Do you mean everybody, the whole thing's going to be changed before he comes? No, because we know that the wheat and the tares are going to grow together. But there's going to be a massive, strong environment of the goodness of the glory of God. So powerful, really big stuff. Give me another slide. 
Isaiah 2, 2, and this is Micah 4, 1, same verse, same thing said. Now it shall come past in the latter days. Say latter days. What's going to happen? The mountain of the Lord's house shall be diminished. It'll be like a dent in the road. Nobody will care about it. People will kick dirt in it. People will say, those Christians are stupid. No, it says, in the latter days, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. It'll have the most significant influence in the world. It'll be on the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above all the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. A lot of people push that into some millennial reign or after the return of Christ, but it's not. In the context, this is well before he returns. So this has to happen. There's going to be a place where the church is in an incredible influence. Before Jesus comes, there has to be a big, strong demonstration of his glory. All right, how will he come? How's he going to come? He's going to come in person. He's going to come in person. The same Jesus who's been taken from you to heaven, the same Jesus will come back, and he'll come back the same way you've seen him go. Jesus was standing there in his resurrected body. He ate with them. He hung out with them. He did things with them. They, they experienced each other tangibly, and then that Jesus went, whoop, went right up to heaven. And they all stood there going, is he coming back? Like, was it, what's going on? And the angels had to say, no, he's gone. He's going to come back again, just like you saw him go. How did he go? He went physically. He ascended physically. How's he going to come back? He's going to come back the same way he left physically with a demonstration of himself and he's going to come personally so how's jesus going to return he's going to come and it's going to be personally it's going to be in person how's he going to come matthew 24 31 30 and 31 it says that he's going to come in power and in glory matthew 24 44 says that he's going to come suddenly therefore be ready when the son of man is coming at the hour you do not expect he's going to come suddenly you're not going to expect it all those guys on tv know exactly when they publish the day and some of them do and it's crazy town but the Bible says nobody knows and it's going to happen suddenly and right when you don't expect it. So how will he come in person, publicly, power and glory and suddenly? When will he come? Amen, pastor. When's he going to come? You ready? When will he come? No one knows. Say no one. No one knows. Matthew 24, 36. However, no one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven, not even the Son himself. Only the Father knows. Only the Father knows. Tell you, when somebody's telling you they know, unless they're saying my answer to when will he come is no one knows, if they got some other answer, it's not biblical. No one knows. How long will it take? You know, Jesus taught some parables about his coming. And in all of those parables, there's a phrase that was there. It says, after a long time. And they had to help the Thessalonians. They, they believed he was coming so soon that they almost stopped living. They well, let's run up our credit cards. Let's do crazy things. He's coming tomorrow. And he goes, no, it may not be right away. He had to teach them about the second coming. So no one knows. And you know what? It's going to be a long time. Say a long time. All right, give me another one. Not until, not until what? Not until, not until the decay of world systems. Not until his kingdom has influence. Now we talked about this a bit already. You know what's got to decay? People, there are still people today who believe that we can change the world through political structures. There are still people today that believe that there are world systems that we can manipulate to bring in the goodness of God. You see, it says everything that can be shaken will be shaken. I'll tell you, one of the things that's got to be shaken off the church, especially in North America, North America, I think, I think they, try to, they try to ride the horse cart of politics and saying that we're going to bring the glory of God to town with the cart of political effort. That's a worldly system. And that worldly system will never bring... God's not going to reduce himself to a political structure. God actually teaches against party spirits. He says, don't have a party spirit. And yet I can't believe how quickly Christians can tie themselves to this party or that party and say, if we get this in, we'll have God's kingdom come. No, you won't. It's rubbish. 
And one of the things that needs to be shaken is that it says, don't trust in chariots. Don't trust in horses. Don't look to Egypt. Don't look to anywhere else. God himself is the one who's going to bring things to pass. So I don't care what's going on in the world. You trust him. He is working in every circumstance or situation. Be responsible. I mean, vote. Do all of those things. Yes, as a citizen. But what belongs to Caesar belongs to Caesar. What belongs to God belongs to God. And you are printed in the image of God, not the image of Caesar. So this belongs to God. It doesn't belong to this party, that party, or anybody else's party. Who gives a rip? Hope I didn't disturb you with that one. You know, if God's going to shake things in your world. If you're trusting in something as a vehicle to give you hope, and it's not God, he'll shake that out of your life because he alone wants to be Lord of your life. So everything that can be shaken will be shaken. What can't be shaken? The church. No, the church can be shaken, and it will be shaken because judgment begins in the house of God. There's things that have to be dealt with in the body of Christ. And I don't know if people are going to have the perception to really understand. They'll be rebuking the devil and they won't know it's God himself addressing some things in the house. Jesus. His kingdom will have influence. Go, go back to that one. Haggai 2, 6 to 9. For thus says the Lord, once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will do the dry land all of it. I'm going to shake it all. I'm going to shake all the nations. They shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory. And then he says, the glory of the latter temple will be greater than the former temple. So what temple was he building? He's saying that this temple will be better than Solomon's temple. What do we know about that temple? It was not close to Solomon's temple. What do we know? He was wasn't talking about that temple. He was prophesying about this temple. He was talking about this, these living stones that are going to be built together into the temple of God, where the Spirit of God is going to dwell in power and in majesty. The glory of this temple, this latter temple, will be greater than the glory of any other temple. And so we know that world systems, believers are going to get shaken out of these false idols that they have, thinking and hoping and stuff that will not satisfy. And we're going to see the kingdom come into the hearts of believers. And we're going to see the kingdom and its influence. And none of these silos that we build all around town. I go to my silo. I go to my silo. We all have our own silo. And all these churches, we're all like silos doing our own thing. It's going to be broken down and we're going to have a kingdom of God that's going to come and manifest itself in power. Just a minute, pause and say amen. All right, not until, it's not until, so not until. In person, publicly in power, suddenly. When's he going to come? No one knows. How long is it going to take? It's going to take a long time. It's not going to happen, not until these things take place. D, 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 observe the signs. Matthew 24, 37, 39. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be in the sun, coming of the Son of Man. For us, in the days of the flood, what was it like in the days of Noah? Here it is. You ready? Here's the signs. A lot of other people misinterpret signs. But here it is. You ready? For as it was in the days of Noah, what's it going to be like when the Son of Man comes? It's going to be just like the days of Noah. What were the days of Noah like? Here's, it explains that the scripture tells you what you should look for. They'll be eating and drinking. Hmm. So they'll be marrying and giving in marriage. Hmm. That'll all be going on until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. Life will be going on just like normal. There's not going to be some, there it is, here it is, there's the sign. There's not going to be a sign that you'll all be able to recognize. They'll be eating and drinking like any other day. They'll be marrying and giving marriage like any other day. It'll just be like any other day. And then all of a sudden, boom, suddenly he comes to his temple. Bam. Oh, I wish you would give me a checklist of stuff so I would know exactly when. You can get that on 
channel 332 at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Ministry has checklists. I don't have checklists. Right at the bottom I say, what signs? What signs? Let's move on. What should I do now? Pastor, after listening to all this, what should I do now? Are you ready? What should I do now? Be a faithful servant, witness, and co-laborer. All right? Amen? Amen. So Luke 19, 13, and he called the 10 servants. He delivered to them, gave them all 10 pounds, and he said, occupy until I come. This was all, these were all parables that were used about you know, preparing for the coming of Christ. And he said, occupy until I come. So what should I be doing? I should be a faithful servant before he comes. First John 3, 1 to 3, when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. What should we do? We should be co-laboring with him. We should be manifesting his nature. We should be letting his righteousness be revealed in and through us. We should be focused on him and who he is and his righteousness and goodness in our lives. All right, we're coming to a rapid conclusion. Ready? Second Peter 3, 11. And 12. You ought to live a holy and godly life as you look forward to the day that God speeds is coming. So what should we do? Those who are looking for the second coming of Christ, what should we be doing? Look what it says. You ought to live, and that word ought means legally you're bound to it. Ought. The same thing he said, woman, I ought to heal you. I'm legally bound to heal you. You ought to live a holy and a godly life as you look forward to the day of God and speed it's coming. So what you should be doing? You should be walking in holiness. So how do you walk in holiness? You receive it from him. And you walk in it every day because you're eating of the tree of life. All right, give me another verse. We're just about done. Just about done. Revelation 22, 1 and 2, 17 and 21. Wasn't that an interesting ride through some highlights of Revelation? Okay, for good. Then the angel showed me a river. Here it is now. The new heaven, the new earth. This is it. The whole new creation with God. So we started, where did we start? We started with two trees. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And we were told, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All right? Two trees. Say two trees. All right, so here we are. We're at the end now. We're at the consummation. We're at the fulfillment of the eternal purpose of God. Are you ready? Here's what it looks like. Then the angel showed me a river of living water, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And it flowed down to the center of the main street. And each side of the river grew a tree of life. We started with two trees. You know what we're going to end up with? One tree. The beautiful thing is we've got that one tree now because that tree is Jesus. We get to eat of that right now. Sadly, some people are in mixture. They're still trying to be little obedient law keepers. But you know, we've been set free of that. We've been delivered from that and we can drink deeply of the tree of life and his wisdom, his righteousness, his strength, everything flows to us because of that relationship. Give me the last slide. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty Come, let anyone who desires to drink freely from the water of life, come, come, come. Not do, but come. If you're thirsty, if you can acknowledge that I can't help myself, I need him, I need his life, if you can do that, here's, here's what you do, just come. Come, anyone who's thirsty, come. Come and drink, come and drink freely of the water of life. Here's the finish of the whole thing. Here's the wrap-up of the whole book. You ready? May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with God's holy people.